Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It is important to plan and have a vision for your life, right? Have aspirations for your life. But the magic of even mindset of flexibility, I'm an example of that, right? I'm an example of when you say, sure, this is this is what my intention is for my life. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm gravitating toward, but be open to the opportunities. And this is not rocket science. I mean, we, we've all heard this. We've experienced it. Sometimes you, you just end up being in the right place having the right conversation and it opens up immense doors how you day how you day that was the voice of nabiha and what an interesting background if you're ever interested in what it's like to be an advocate to be involved with global advocacy to fight for under-resourced communities and underrepresented communities to understand how to create sustainable initiatives you're in for a doozy. And even after this episode, what I want you to do is to research her because she's had a wealth of experience being someone who has worked on several boards, several organizations to fight for greater income, to fight for education and nutrition and maternal and child survival gains. And all these things are in her, you know, wheelhouse. And she's also someone who has gained a lot of cross-cultural competency. A lot of people listening to this podcast are people interested in making an impact in the world and looking to use their voices to make it a difference. And I think this is one of those episodes for you to really go in on a deep dive on who she is personally. You know, there'll be a link to her website in the in the uh, in the show links. And I also put a LinkedIn information so that you can connect with her. What a great episode. I really enjoy talking to her. I think in a time such as now where we need to remind ourselves of our humanities and the importance to strive for equity amongst ourselves, it's imperative that we find our inner advocacy. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today we have the amazing, the brilliant, the talented Nabiha Kazi Hutchins. And she is a seasoned leader with a track record of building multi-sectoral coalitions, catalytic partnerships, and integrated global health advocacy campaigns. Now, some of you might be wondering what any of those things mean. We're going to dive into that because her career, as you probably can guess at this point, is one that involves a lot of lived experiences, but it also involves a a lot of collaborations and partnerships. And I'm very, very curious to dive into what led her down that path and what she's learned from interacting with so many people from different backgrounds. Welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be here, Tayo. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, the pleasure is mine. Now, before you became, you know, the, the, the founder and former CEO, president and CEO of Humanitas, Humanitas Global? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Humanitas Global. I'm very curious as to what the early, early years of Nabiha was like. What were you doing? What did you envision yourself doing? And how did you wind up changing the world? Yeah, wow. Well, that, that's a really simple question to answer in, in two minutes. Um, <laughs> no, take all the time. You take all the time. Take all the time. No, I love it. You know, I say the, the, the hardest question for me to answer is the question of where are you from? Ah, and it's also the question I love to answer. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, let's just start a little bit from from the beginning. Um, and uh, I'm Pakistani, was born in Pakistan and moved to Mexico, traveled all around the world, uh, like you, Tayo. Um, my, my father was in international agriculture, so that's why we were in Mexico. And um, I'm a third culture kid, right? Is uh, at the same time um, where, where you say, I don't really belong. <laughs> Uh, perfectly in one environment, but at the same time, I, I find a way to belong everywhere, I think has really been um, defining for me uh, of how I approach the world, how I approach leadership, how I approach um, communities that that I live in and, and that I work in and that I play in. Uh, so it's it's been a fascinating um, personal trajectory, given all of the international influence, all the things that I've seen the the good and bad exposures, right? Yeah. You take the not so great stuff and, and you always learn from them also. And I think the biggest piece is um, being open and, and being very open-minded um, because great things have come to me by this, the simple uh, commitment to being curious and being very open and flexible to see what, what could come your way. I love that. I love that you're saying yeah. that, though. No, sorry. Go ahead. I, I just I no, just no, wanted no. to interject because I love that you're saying that because of the flexibility. But I know you you wanted to elaborate more on the flexibility. There was a point I wanted to build upon based on your lived experience, and a negative one in specific. Uh, but yeah, please carry on. Yeah. No. And I think I think just just the last piece on flexibility as as someone who was raised um, in different countries and you know also so many different cultures in one household the Pakistani culture and the Mexican culture. And um, I lived in Kansas for a long time. That's actually what my parents came to the United States. Uh, my father pursuing his PhD at Kansas State University. So went from Pakistan, from Karachi, all the way to small town Manhattan, Kansas. And so I'm, I'm really proud of my Midwestern roots as well. Um, I'm a US citizen out of Kansas and have very, very strong ties to the state. So all of that kind of living in one household influence, we definitely had our own ecosystem at home where you heard all these different languages. And one night we're having one type of meal and another night we're having another type of meal. And um, the the birthday parties are a mishmash of everything. You know, it was it was just fascinating. You can't like put me in one box, which is fun. You can't put you uh, in one box. And and. What I wanted to really say that, and you even went on to elaborate on that, is that idea of having those multiple cultures at home. I know for me, when I was growing up, you know, it was a huge Nigerian influence. And even my parents had a, a saying, you know, your 
no matter where you are, you're Nigerian, you're Nigerian here, you know, you're Nigerian at home. And so even when I went to Burkina Faso, I went to Vietnam, I went to Nigeria, it was always a Nigerian uh, sense at home. And we would, would have that culture. But there was a huge identity crisis that I went through. And, and I, I think I did the same thing you did. I, I, when I was able to reframe, you know, a lot of the negative thoughts I had around that to curiosity and, and, and understanding that the world could actually be open, I started to really find myself, quote unquote, uh, existing better as opposed to, to, to feeling um, like what was me. But it took a, a long journey for me uh, through my uh, youth, especially when I was in boarding school. I had to write, which ironically I'm a writer now, but I had to write and really understand what I was insecure about and what stories I felt like I uh, had attached myself to and what stories I was open to growing into. So I'm curious for you, what it, you know, did you have any identity crisis? Were there any experiences that you um, learned from during your formative years and did they play a role in what you do right now? Yeah, Tayo, it's such an important question. I think also given the moment that we're in now where so many conversations around um, sense of belonging and environments that are intentional about creating a sense of belonging. When my parents came with me to the United States back in the late set, in the it was the yeah it was the early seventies, nineteen seventy five or so. Those conversations were not happening. It was very clear um, at a very young age, you know, in in again Manhattan, Kansas, and and I don't recall any any negative experience as a child. Um, why? Maybe because my mom made it really clear to me that you are different. Um, you are the only or one of the few brown children. You are the only immigrant in your class. You're the kid who doesn't eat pork because your family is Muslim. Mm. Um, so you are a different child. We um, knew that. And I think there was a balance of it's OK for you to be a different to be for you to be different. Um, and it's and you have to acknowledge that you are not going to be catered to. Right. When their ham sandwiches as a snack in kindergarten, your mother will make sure you've got a snack that you can eat, right? You can't expect that the world is going to meet your needs and meet you where you are um, because you don't fit in to the norms of a certain society. And that sounds awful, 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 Tayo, to say um, to you, but that was really clear to me when I was very young. And I think that's probably part of my resilience. Um, but we don't have to be that way anymore, you know, at all. Um, the, the, the other piece, and, and I'm sure, you know, like you said, your parents saying, don't forget, right? You, you are Nigerian. This is your culture. Yeah. Um, my parents did some of that. But I also think, and, and again, credit to my mom on this, um, is my mom herself recognizing that there's some things that she was going to give up because coming to the United States meant opportunity for her family and for her daughters. And you can't keep it all as it was back in Hyderabad, Pakistan, or Karachi, Pakistan. You just can't. There's some things that you have to be able to let go so your child can fit in where they can fit in. Um, and so... I had a mom and also a father who were supportive of saying, we're okay with if you're going to change up your dress, right? It's, you don't have to be um, in Muslim garb 
that is no longer a requirement. We don't do that anyway in our family, but I'm giving this as an example is you can get to a point where you are trying to preserve your cultural heritage mm-hmm. um, to such an extreme that your child feels that they are completely left out and cannot form the kind of connections that every child wants to form. Like, I think every child wants to have a sense of belonging with their friends and in their community, in their neighborhood. So we walked a really fine line. We knew where things were all okay and we could go and and live as we wanted to in this new culture. And then there were some things which were absolutely non-negotiable, right? Non-negotiable because those were important to my family and we were aware of those as well. That sense of uh, one of my friends, Andy Malinsky, calls that cultural dexterity. And uh, I think there's a cultural fluency to that. But, but that's amazing that you, you had that experience in, uh, you know, you growing up in Manhattan, Kansas. I didn't know it was Manhattan, Kansas until you said that. Because uh, I live in Manhattan, New York now. But Well, in Tayo, it's called the Little Apple, right? The Little so, Apple. So when, ah. when my dad, this is an anecdote, when my dad was going uh, to Kansas State University for his PhD, yeah. people were saying, and he was the first of the extended family to come to the United States for higher education. And like in Nigeria, extended family is not just your grandmother and your first cousin. It's all 700 of them in our family. Yeah, oh my gosh, okay. yes. <laughs> um, they all showed up at the airport to bid my father farewell as he goes off to do great things. But um, before he was going, people would say, oh, Manhattan, very, very big city, dangerous, don't go out at night you might get lost, like just all these things. And he shows up in Manhattan, Kansas. And he said, this is not scary. And there aren't big buildings here. Uh, So that's probably a different disorientation. But yes, we we have a Manhattan, Kansas, and it's called the Little Apple. It's, uh, I I know it was in the 70s too. So uh, New York had a very different reputation back then, Um, especially, you know, listening and up on on history. It was, I'm sure, uh, your family was really worried about what they were seeing on TV based on what was being exported out there. Um, okay. Well, I'm curious now. So we have the, the firm background there. As you start to navigate adolescence and then you get into college and university, what is the career path that you're thinking for yourself at this point in life? Yeah, I'm thinking that it's it's going to be in, um, in social impact, uh, in development, um, in in a field where I can make the world a better place and um, at the same time have a platform for my voice and for those who want to speak up and speak out against injustices. Um, and, And this was part of my upbringing and my background is by the very nature of my father's work, which was in international agricultural development around hunger alleviation, uh, combating malnutrition, all through a science research lens, of course. This was the Institute in Mexico. Right. It was already part of our daily lives. So that was very clear to me. I also knew the things that I loved and that I was good at. Right. So um, I think it it throughout my life, I I knew that part of me was always going to be in the social impact space in the advocacy space Um, as as now president and CEO of PAI. I am exactly where I hoped I would be. 
people would say, what do you want to do 10 years from now? I would say, well, I would like to lead a, a public health, a health advocacy organization. I didn't know where or when or how, but I love the cause issue movement idea of change making. And I also love team building and leadership and, and doing right by my peers in an organization. So we're all growing and thriving and at the same time doing good, necessary work with partners around the world. I think that's very important for anyone listening to understand. And I love that you're so transparent with your story. You had an idea that it was going to be in the field of social impact and you kept following your curiosities, right? You kept doing uh, the things that lit you up, the things you were passionate about. And then it led you uh, down the path of eventually being the CEO you know, and president of PAI. And along the way, uh, you know, I'm, it sounds like you'll agree that your experience at Humanitas, uh, you know, Kaboom, all these other places have all played a role in what you do right now. And it's because of that, that I guess, heat into your calling and your passions that, you know, you, you eventually attracted the opportunity, which is so uniquely suited for your skill set. 100%. This is, this is why I say the flexibility and openness is it is important to plan and have a vision for your life, right? Have aspirations for your life. But the magic of even mindset of flexibility, I'm an example of that, right? I'm an example of when you say, sure, this is, this is what my intention is for my life. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm gravitating toward, but be open to the opportunities. And this is not rocket science. I mean, we, we've all heard this. We've experienced it. Sometimes you, you just end up being in the right place, having the right conversation, and it opens up immense doors. Yeah. The fact that you brought up Kaboom, I mean, that's such a, such a great example. Um, Kaboom is in, is in the sector. It's in a U.S.-focused place-based equity focused on making sure that children have access to play. And I never in my mind would have thought about uh, going to work in the play-space area, right? I, I, I just didn't understand what, I love it. I've got two children. Play is really important, but I, I didn't know why I would be there. And the whole mission and movement around, around the work of Kaboom is around equity, around social justice in a country here in the United States where Black, Brown, and Indigenous children have not had access to play. Yeah. And so I've just, as an example, I've always ended up being in places that are about social justice, are around correcting um, or calling out the wrongs of the past and figuring out how can we be better moving forward? Yeah, no, no, I love it. And now PAI, at least on, on the website here, and I'm curious to hear more, it says it expands access to sexual and reproductive health and rights in three areas. So advocating for women, girls, and marginalized communities, supporting global partners through strategic advocacy, very much your experience, and increasing county country ownership of family planning. So what what exactly is PIA and why is it important for you to, to advance the causes? Yeah, I, uh, I joined PAI in January and I, I am home. Um, I, I am home. All, all the, all the things that you've noted that we've been talking about, uh, my experiences, my intentions, this trajectory of my career and life, all of it gets to show up at PAI for me. Um, PAI is a 56 year organization. 
uh, one of the leading international uh, organizations, civil society organizations. We have nonprofit status that has been among the leaders at the forefront of advocating for sexual reproductive health and rights for communities around the world. And um, there are three kind of core core pillars of work um, that that I would say define you know the 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 trajectory of PAI and the journey that that we are on. All of it linked to a movement where we believe that every human being, women, young people, vulnerable communities, should have the fundamental right uh, to sexual and reproductive health. They should have the fundamental right to be able to make decisions and choices for their own bodies and their own aspirations. And um, certainly the work of PAI is very much around advocacy, lifting up evidence and data that shows, for example, uh, when a woman, when a young person has access to contraception, when uh, a, a young boy has access to uh, sexual um, sex education, uh, when there's uh, access to menstrual hygiene, um, consistent access, right, to menstrual hygiene, menstrual health uh, services and support for, for girls and women. We see that has cross-cutting effects for better outcomes for other things, such as better outcomes on education. If, if a girl, you know, just get very real and detailed, if a girl has access, a young girl has access to um, menstrual health products, and we're also alongside uh, working with country partners to build out awareness and education about menstrual health and stop stigmatizing that, maybe that girl child will actually stay in school and complete mm. her education, right? So there, there, there are other longstanding ramifications and consequences. We've seen, for example, when communities have um, policies and programs that don't align with supporting sexual reproductive health and rights, uh, meaning then you recognize the autonomy of the individual. You trust people, you trust women to make the choices they need to make for themselves, their bodies, their families. When you don't have those in place, then you're also seeing uh, higher rates of gender-based violence. You're also seeing higher rates of hunger and malnutrition. So I share all of this because this is all connected. If we're talking about progress and prosperity and doing it in a way that is sustainable, that is responsive to communities and so on and so forth, we cannot piecemeal um, development priorities based on what feels politically convenient or what feels socially acceptable. We have to look at the whole human, we have to look at the whole person and all of those dynamics. So um, PAI is on the forefront of driving that advocacy, sharing evidence and insights, and also, um, and perhaps most importantly, and I think for this conversation, is um, our country partnerships. We, we, we also provide funding and we have currently 96 funded partners across 33 countries that we work with. And these partners including, we've had partners in Nigeria. Um, these partners are the partners who are driving the work um, to ensure that communities have access to sexual reproductive health services and information. These partners are setting the agenda. These partners are informing how to go about the work. And PAI provides a technical strategic support role aside from the funding piece. 
And the funding piece I think is important um, to recognize. And this is where the sector, the development sector is starting to shift, but we need to see more of it is flexibility, flexibility with our funding. Uh, because it doesn't only matter who gives you the funding, it also matters what they want you to do with it. And we take our approach in our subgranting to say, you decide. We trust you because you know better. Mm. You decide what you need to do with these funds to do right by your organization, your team, your community. And we've had some funders who trust PAI in the same manner because advocacy and movement building requires a high level of flexibility, a high level of responsiveness. Um, and, and if we're going to make the kind of impact that we all aspire to make together, we have to start from a place of trust and recognizing that communities know best. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's, it's fascinating. Um, to me, because I think some people will be listening to this podcast and they'll be surprised to hear that gender-based violence is still such an issue, even in 2021, and that there are restrictions to, um, you know, things as simple as reproductive information. But I'm curious from your perspective, especially with, with the background you have and the level of interaction you've had with multiple governments and multiple systems, what are these barriers that exist? Because even in the United States, it's have seen it happen in Congress here. So I'm just curious... What are those barriers that exist that really get institutions and governments to feel like this idea of um, educating folks or providing access um, to, to, to these uh, simple, um, quote unquote, simple things is not necessary? Yeah. Well, since you've raised the U.S., let's talk about the U.S. <laughs> and, and the signal, right? And, and, and the consequences under the Trump administration. Uh, yeah. There is a policy called the global gag rule. It has been on again, off again, depending upon the party that is in power. Usually a Republican party uh, leadership will put it back into effect. Uh, and then Democratic leaders will, will take it off the table. Uh, this was one of the one of the uh, devastating, um, painful policies, again, that Donald Trump put into effect under his administration and effectively uh, barring access to safe abortion um, and tying U.S. funding internationally, USAID, U.S. government funding 
to um, committing and aligning to that. So any organizations around the world that were that were receiving USAID funding uh, and, and health organizations in particular, if you were offering, for example, uh, safe abortion information, um, safe abortion uh, services mm-hmm. and counseling, you would no longer receive U.S. funding. I'm making this, you know, very simple. There are other complications here, but that is an illustration of how the stroke of a pen can have far-reaching and very disruptive consequences for the health and well-being of communities around the world. And that is a perfect example of paternalism, right? Is we in the United States, through that policy, have imposed our value system on other countries and other countries that had no role in electing our president. Right. So um, so this is this is also played out because as we look to roll out and scale up access to the COVID-19 vaccine, what do you need? You need functioning health systems. You need and health systems, not just buildings. In some cases, like in my home country of Pakistan, the most robust health system is the lady health worker health system, where the lady health workers are going out into the community and working um, directly with families and providing counseling and care on a range of health and wellness issues. So what that does is for health systems and health structures uh, that might have been reliant on USAID funding or U.S. government funding uh, to continue a range of health interventions, not just access to safe abortion, but um, well-child visits, right? Information on contraception, on nutrition, et cetera, they had to close their doors or they had to reduce their staff. And that, that has had an erosion, that has had a, an eroding effect on the vibrancy and resilience of health systems that we need to activate now in order to get vaccines into the arms of people around the world. Yeah, I remember when the gag rule uh, happened too, and I, and I remember the lack of understanding around it. And, and there's a lot of, you know, what you, you talk about how people sometimes are not aware of what influence they have with a stroke of a pen, or sometimes they're aware, which is even scarier, <laughs> of the influence that they have. But this idea of imposing, I guess, a moral system, a system that they believe uh, that they have uh, and, and enforcing other environments, it, it's reminiscent of um, something both of our, our, our home countries went through, which is colonization. Uh, and I'm very curious about this idea of uh, decolonizing the funding process, because I think it takes on this idea of colonization takes on many shapes and forms in today's uh, world. And it doesn't look necessarily like uh, maybe someone riding on a horse and shooting uh, <laughs> are your people now, but it looks like what you just explained <laughs> a lot of times. And how can we be more aware of that? Yeah. So even beyond decolonizing aid uh, and funding, it's decolonizing development yeah. as a whole. Um, and it goes back from the very beginning, from when colonial powers decided to take over countries and resources and uh, dictate who was worthy and who wasn't uh, to live in the big house, right? Um, so the, 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 the colonization mindset of development 
as you know, Tayo, is very much rooted in we know better than you um, for whatever reason, and we can set the agenda. The decolonizing development agenda is about not building back better. It's about fundamentally changing how we do our work, who is leading, who is informing the priorities, how funding is used. And I'm not, I'm not ever going to say, well, it just all needs to be a free-for-all, you know, funder, give us blank checks and we will do with it what we want. No, I, I think there's um, an accountability conversation that also needs to occur, but goes both ways. And, and, and I think the, the, the discussions that are happening right now with decolonizing, it is very much about who is deciding the priorities and yes. who is actually implementing the work. There are time and time and time again, there have been examples where um, big development initiatives are put in place and big infusion of funding and incredibly talented teams come in and implement for five years. The, the, the program wraps up and that work isn't sustained or the results, um, you might see them in the short term, they don't carry forward. And then there's kind of a, a, uh, a falling back. Um, we see it with COVID, right? As as much as there's been billions and billions of investment across a range of development um, factors and development issues, the response to COVID and the communities that could mobilize and support their families and community members were those who had strong local community-led systems. Um, that were not reliant on the big global mechanisms to provide aid and provide support, or even national systems for that matter. And so all of this has been flipped on its head that this needs to be local, the power needs to shift. Um, and yes, let's provide the technical assistance and, and the strategic support where it's needed. But again, we have to go in with the mindset of let us trust the people and the communities who know better about what they need and how to go about this work. Let's stop imposing what we in the United States or we in Europe or we sitting in large international organizations think is best for you. Yeah. And, and you are a champion of flexible funding, right? I'm guessing that's one. Of, is that one of the solutions to, to this? The idea of providing funding. It, it is. It's, a, it's among the solutions. So we need to be far more flexible with, with our funding. And PAI is flexible with its funding to its, its funded partners around the world. Uh, as I said, we, we always start the conversation with what is it that you need and how can we support? Uh, and it has nothing to do with where we're going to provide this funding and would like you to implement X, Y, and Z. That is not the starting point or the end point of the conversation. It's the starting point is one of trust. So I think flexible funding is really important, especially for the world of advocacy and in movement making and making sure that we are highly responsive to changing dynamics in particular because it is the sector I'm in around what's happening with sexual reproductive health and rights and the well-being of women, young people, and vulnerable communities. Yeah, the yeah. other piece is the co-creation, right? The co-creation of initiatives and the co-creation of, of agendas and initiatives is who is informing. Let's do that together. Let's do that together with the partners on the field who are in the field who are seeing what is needed day in and day out. 
co-creating, co-funding, flexible funding. Um, it's like partnerships, <laughs> basically humanizing the people you're working with as, as opposed to imposing your will on them without gathering the necessary information, which is a very interesting way of doing things, uh, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, I, I, um, I know we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about uh, ways we can set up an accountability culture. I find that our world doesn't have enough accountability. And, you know, at least from, from my experience of growing, growing up in different parts of the world, that there's, um, especially when I was in the, the dictatorships, and even when I've seen what's happened here in the last few years with the governments and the regimes, there, I think problems exist when accountability structures aren't there, or the checks and balances don't exist, or aren't respected, or people aren't able to understand that they have a role in making sure that certain things don't exist. In fact, they just realize that they feel like they're programmed and they're helpless and that doesn't do anything. So I'm curious for those listening, because there are a lot of change makers who listen to this episode who are either thinking about getting into the field or already in the field, how can they set up structures within their, their organizations, their families to make sure that they're aware, one, <laughs> constantly, uh, and they can critically think through policies and then also push back when things are unjust. Yeah, it's such such a good question. Um, you, you know, the accountability conversation is happening across the board, uh, both accountability of leadership in organizations to accountability of the donor community and what they commit to, to accountability of governments. And are they providing what they promised they would provide to communities? I think the 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 biggest, um, most powerful force uh, in any accountability type conversation are the people. Um, is if you talk about government and and the conversations occurring around holding government accountable, they're movements of people, everyday people who are saying we need this or enough, or we're taking this into our own hands um, because we deserve better. At the very individual institutional level, same thing. It, it's people, right? We're human beings. We have certain needs. We want to belong. We want to grow. We want to be seen. We want to be validated. Um, so I think that the, the accountability systems and mechanisms and transparency on, on not only what you've committed to, but how you're going to measure progress, measure if courses need to be corrected, those systems need to be in place. And then on the third end is making sure that the people who are going to hold each other, that all of us holding each other accountable are, to your point, aware uh, and, and are engaged in the process. Otherwise, without all, that, all those three components, and there are probably more, without all those three coming together, it's just empty words and systems and processes that no one is actually tracking. Um, right. So it, it needs to come together, right? The intention, the the commitment, and then the eyes and the heart who will who will keep us all honest. And I also say accountability. We have to hold ourselves accountable. Right. So it's very easy to throw the rocks, right, and be critical and say you 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 are not meeting me here here here. I think there's shared responsibility and shared accountability to also. And I always say when something doesn't go right, I'm talking very personally, 
I look also at myself and say, what, what could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. Where did I miss the mark? And I think it takes um, a lot of courage to be able to do that because who wants to say they're imperfect, right? But we have to start with ourselves and say, all right, how am I holding myself accountable? And at the same time, when I do that, then I have every right to hold others accountable. It can't be a one-way street. Yeah, yeah. Ah, this is so good. Self-awareness, situation awareness, and then just just community awareness. I I think a lot of us have sometimes maybe been taught that that's weakness to acknowledge failure or anything that didn't work as intended. And so that that the idea of masking it only exacerbates the problem. But I I, want to thank you for your candidness and and your your openness to to share, uh, you know, about certain things that we don't even think about. And Ironically, affect us on a daily basis, affect more than half of the population. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash press on and use code press on 25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, of our world. So I want to thank you for the work that you're doing and everything that you've, you've done to continue to advance the causes. Well, thank you for having me. Um, we all need to be kind to each other. Yes. Well, how can people uh, support? How can people reach out? Yeah. So uh, we need more voices. We need more friends. We need more amplifiers. And it comes with understanding what the issues are. So uh, visit us online. Uh, Our website is www.pai.org. Get get aware of the issues. And, you know, I will always say we welcome funding. You know, we welcome funding. We, right. we we need the funding so we can support the great work in the field. Uh, so there's information there. But I think what's most important is that each of us have a role in lifting up our voices and case making. So join us. Um, join us on this journey. Join us with this movement. Go online, learn more. And our team is always available and willing to speak to any organizations, to young people, um, to corporations, to other nonprofits. Let's figure out how we collaborate and amplify and case make uh, for what is right. Right. And the last question I always ask my guests is my mission statement reframed as a question, which is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you use your difference to make a difference? By being open and being me. I think openness and authenticity. Openness and authenticity. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and and spending uh, this much time with us. I look forward to getting this episode out. And uh, thank you. You've been a real blessing to the episode. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine. And kings, queens, and royalty till next time. Use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads 
podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com.